1975, and in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, paramedic John Moon is on his shift with the Freedom House Ambulance Service when an emergency call comes through. We had a young kid in a affluent neighborhood that was struck by a bus while riding his bike. The police were the first to respond, and it was grim. The police arrived on the scene and discovered that the child had very traumatic injuries, uh, massive lacerations. He was very close to dying. They surveyed the situation and said, you know, we can't handle this. So they called into the dispatcher and asked the dispatcher, could they send Freedom House? Freedom House was the premier emergency medical services, or EMS team. So things seemed to be falling into place. But in reality, things were a step away from falling apart. There was nothing standard about this call. The dispatcher said no, because it was out of our area. And the officer responded, well, you better send someone out here to know what the hell they're doing. You see, the cops were supposed to know what the hell they were doing, at least in theory, or in the way emergency services were organized. In 1975, the police were responsible for emergency services, but there was a huge issue. They weren't properly trained to provide emergency medical care. The same went for the ambulance drivers that were being called in place of Freedom House. Driving was their specialty. You were lucky if they had advanced first aid training. The quality of care that you got was very minimal at best. That was the kind of care for most of the United States, but not where John and the Freedom House team served in Pittsburgh. In the neighboring area, three districts to be exact, things looked and operated a little different from the affluent neighborhood this child lived in. Freedom House provided expert medical care on site to their area, which were all underserved Black communities. They were really the ones providing the kind of care we expect when EMS teams show up today. But in this white neighborhood, they weren't welcome. Fortunately for us, we monitored the police radio through a scanner. This big emergency call, I'll put call in air quotes, wasn't a direct one from their dispatcher. John and his team had a portable police scanner in their ambulance with them. And this is how they learned of the accident. Freedom House had been sidelined from responding to emergencies like this numerous times, so they'd taken up this stealth pirated radio tactic. It was for the benefit of Pittsburgh residents because they truly needed them. Freedom House was at the forefront of pre-hospital care because they had invented it, and they weren't afraid to skirt the rules to provide their expertise. We self-dispatched and subsequently arrived on the scene and treated the child, transported him to Children's Hospital, which saved his life because we brought the emergency room to the child. Today, emergency medical services are a customary or even obvious form of healthcare. But back in 1975, it was only eight years old, still proving its case and was not widely used. I mean, pretty hard to believe, right? With Freedom House Ambulance Service, what began as a local program to provide emergency medical care to a small, underserved Black community in Pittsburgh, went on to be the blueprint for something much greater. 
we were the proving ground of every EMS system in the country. I'm Takara Small, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. On today's episode, the pioneering story of Freedom House Ambulance Service. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For black folks in the United States in the 60s and 70s, times were challenging. The civil rights movement had ushered in new freedoms, but the decades of discrimination meant communities were building from the ground up in a lot of ways. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, John Moon and residents of the Hill District were fighting to care for their own. The Hill District, where I grew up, was one of the most underserved communities in the city of Pittsburgh. It was almost forgotten for the very basic needs that you would expect a community to have. My mindset was just to survive more so than anything else. You can see the lasting impact of that mode of being in John's quiet and serious, but gentle nature. That survival mentality was community-wide, and it had to be. No one was really looking out for folks in the Hill. John says the community could feel it. The police, unfortunately, lacked compassion. The politicians were more concerned about their voting constituents in well-to-do neighborhoods. So as a result, we have to accept the fact that racism at a very high level existed on a lot of planes, uh, education, jobs, entrepreneurship, as well as medical care. Which meant their literal survival was sometimes on the line. If a medical emergency happened, you kind of had to hope for the best. City cabs didn't service Black neighborhoods. There was no 911 yet. And forget about on-site treatment. The priority was getting you to a hospital by any means necessary. And the choices weren't that great. The police were option number one. They were just there to come and get you and take you to the hospital. In their mind, it was easier to rush the person to the emergency room than to do something for them before they got there. So it was almost like what they call a swoop and scoop type of mentality. They would place you in the back of a a paddy wagon and both officers would get up front and they would race to the hospital with you in the back. You can already see the flaws in this system. If you were in the back needing critical care and the police were in the front, you were all on your own. Downright terrifying. Option two were volunteer firefighters, but this wasn't really an option for folks in the Hill District or really any metropolitan area. Volunteer firefighter services were mostly in the suburbs, and even for the people who did have access, you were at the mercy of men who were unpaid and poorly trained. 
So that left you with option three, the local funeral home. Yeah, you heard that right. And it's as strange and as creepy as it sounds. Imagine a hearse arriving at your home where maybe they had just had a funeral 45 minutes prior to that. And flowers or petals from the deceased were lying on the floor of the hearse. They would oftentimes have to sweep out the hearse and put a stretcher in there. Obviously, if I'm lying back there looking around and I see this, that doesn't give me very much hope (laughs) in route to the emergency room. Um, yeah, no thank you. That sounds like my worst nightmare. Okay, so out of the three options, the most common one was the cops. But that choice came with another set of problems. Rampant discrimination meant the mostly white departments would decide if you were worthy of their time. And if not, they would take their sweet time getting there, mistreat you when they showed up, maybe even refuse to transport you, or they'd skip the call altogether. Now, this was wildly unacceptable. We're talking people's lives being on the freaking line. Which led to Freedom House being created. It got its start back in 1967. Phil Hallen, the president of a medical foundation in the area, had seen how bad emergency care was for folks in the Hill and wanted to help. He could award a grant to a program that could change all of this. And he knew just who to call. Freedom House Enterprises. It was an organization founded that same year by civil rights activists in the Hill District. One of their initiatives was selling produce around the community out of the back of a truck. Seeing the success of that mobile community service, Phil saw a great opportunity. He, in turn, met with legal representatives of Freedom House, and they came up with an idea that if we can deliver food to people's residents, why can't we deliver health care to them? The very first class of Freedom House ambulance trainees were made up of folks from the Hill District that were unemployed, returning Vietnam War vets struggling with substance abuse, or recruited right off the streets. After a grueling training, they hit the streets as paramedics. This for us, by us strategy was an important signal to the community that they could trust the people meant to serve them because they shared their experience and had the same needs. They were led by a medical trailblazer, Dr. Peter Safar, who was an Austrian immigrant who pioneered the life-saving resuscitation technique CPR. Yeah, that CPR. His main mission was to bring the emergency room to the patients and start treatment right there on the street. And that's exactly what they did. From starting IVs and delivering babies, to managing spinal injuries and driving the first fleet of modernized ambulances. They were the first official paramedic crew in the United States. And to put things into context, The word paramedic didn't even exist until they came up. So this was truly revolutionary. And that's just what it was to John Moon when he first saw them in action in 1971. At the time, he was an orderly at a hospital in the Hill District, which was not glamorous at all. The tasks were more janitorial than action-packed. John didn't feel that the job was beneath him, but he did wonder if he could help people in a more meaningful way. 
There was something inside of me that said I had to do more. That's something that was driving me to say, this can't be all you can be or all you can do. That was constantly going through my mind because the reputation of an orderly was the last person on the rung in the ladder of accomplishments. One day while working his shift as an orderly, it clicked. I was in a patient's room and the patient was being discharged. And these two guys came in and they had white uniforms and they had beards and they had afros, which was the style. There was a a sense of pride that they displayed. There was a sense of, of confidence. And it kind of struck me odd that they commanded their presence right there. That makes sense. It was rare for John to see black men in jobs that weren't undervalued or looked down on. And in integrated spaces, Black people weren't really given permission to take up space. But this was also when Black people were reclaiming their identity. John was rocking an afro and a beard of his own. So these paramedics, that representation, it hit differently, and he took notice. He noticed something else, too. A symbol on their shirts that would set his path in motion almost instantly. I just happened to notice the patch that said Freedom House Ambulance. And I said, now it has to be some kind of way that I could get that job. Being a resident of the Hill, John knew Freedom House and its reputation. But it took seeing them in action for him to really understand their power. After that run-in, he searched for the location of Freedom House's offices and showed up with his resume in hand. He meets the operations director and tells him he wants to apply for a job. And the guy said, okay, well, that's that's fine. If I gave you a photograph of the heart, would you be able to diagram the chambers of the heart for me? I said, uh, no. He said, okay, if I gave you a section of the lungs, could you diagram the respiratory tract for me? No. Okay, well, we can't hire you. You're not qualified. In the years since the first class of paramedics with zero experience, Freedom House required incoming medics to have some prior training. John thought that his experience as an orderly would easily translate, so he was totally bummed to learn that this wasn't the case. But instead of accepting the setback, he saw something else. The peek into what knowledge it really took to join Freedom House actually encouraged him. There was still this desire inside of me that that's where I wanted to be, so it was up to me to find out how to get there. And he did. John found a 13-week course that helped him learn some of the basic procedures and techniques he needed to make the Freedom House team. The class consisted of what to do in case you found an unconscious patient how to position them, if they needed oxygen, how to administer that. If someone was involved in an automobile accident, how to safely remove them from the vehicle and immobilize them so that they didn't sustain any further injuries. He committed to classes twice a week, and it paid off. He passed the exam. With his certificate in hand, he went back to the Freedom House offices and was hired on the spot. He was issued a white uniform of his own, The same one he'd seen the two men wearing that day on his shift. And on his first day, crisp uniform on, 
checking out a Freedom House ambulance for the first time, John knew he was right where he needed to be. Putting on that uniform really gave me a a sense of accomplishment, a sense of confidence. To step in that vehicle gave me a sense of pride that I hadn't felt in years. The only place I had to go from that point on was up. Or more like up and out. It was time for John to hit the streets as a full-fledged paramedic and really get to work saving lives. But he'd also learn that not everyone would be happy to see him coming. More on this after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Warning, this podcast contains juicy tales of a super dysfunctional family. Brothers betraying brothers, friends becoming enemies, and a mother trying her best to keep everything from falling apart. No, this isn't a reality TV rewatch. I'm Dan Jones, your host, and this is one of my all-time favorite true stories. Join me on a trip to the Middle Ages to meet history's most dangerous dynasty, the Plantagenets. This season, the plots are thicker, the ambitions greater, and the betrayals are even more devious in the epic saga of the family that shaped our world. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is history. A Dynasty to Die For, Season 2. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. John had proven to himself that he was capable of doing more, that he could be something greater. And he joined ranks with people who wanted the same thing. It was a community he was proud to be a member of. We all had something in common. We had a a job to do, and our goal was to provide the Hill District with the very best pre-hospital care that we could, because we knew if we didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. As a new member of Freedom House Ambulance Service, John was finally getting in on the hospital action he'd been so close to as an orderly, but so far away from as well. He spent about nine months learning the ins and outs of patient care the Freedom House way. They visited local hospitals doing rotations in places like the emergency room, birthing units, and morgue, actually treating patients and dissecting cadavers to learn all about the human body. It was fascinating, but John didn't receive many warm greetings during his training. As a whole, doctors were skeptical of this group of black men they saw as pesky outsiders. The response itself was not very receptive at all. So we had to utilize our internal influence, which was our medical director, and her name was Dr. Nancy Caroline. Dr. Nancy Caroline joined Freedom House as their medical director in 1974. She was a big deal in a couple different ways. She was the first woman doctor to lead Freedom House in its then six-year existence. 
And as a brilliant woman physician in the male-dominated medical field, I'd say her presence was groundbreaking, period. Dr. Caroline saw John and his colleagues as being worthy of the time and dedication it took to stick around, develop a curriculum, and see this group become the best paramedics they could be. As folks defying societal odds on both ends, they were kind of like kindred spirits. It's worth mentioning that since the beginning of Freedom House's founding, the communities outside of the Hill District stamped people like John, who were fighting to get access to better opportunities than what had historically been available to them, with a shade-filled term. They were called the unemployables. And that's not true, because I had a job, I actually had a couple of them prior to my coming to Freedom House. There were other people there that were still in college while working at Freedom House. So the term really did not depict the quality of the individuals that actually worked there. We conducted ourselves in a fashion that there was nothing out there that we couldn't accomplish. Dr. Caroline knew the common ground they shared as underdogs was powerful, so she trained them as people who could accomplish anything. We all loved her dearly, and she was able to get us into any specialty unit that was otherwise off-limits. So uh, let me paint you this picture of a group of African-American men with beards and afros walking through the halls of a hospital with a five-foot-two Jewish woman. I can see it now in all its 70s glory. Dr. Caroline at the front of a fanned-out V formation with a perfectly quaffed John and team gliding through the hospital halls, turning heads. And we're just carrying on the conversation like, you know, she was one of us. We walk right through the doors of an intensive care unit. Don't introduce ourselves. Don't tell anyone why we're here or anything. Walk right up to a patient's bedside and start examining the patient. That is something that was unheard of. With training under his belt, John hit the streets with the rest of his Freedom House colleagues and put that training to use. You had to be quite adept at reading EKGs and cardiac rhythms. You had to be very good at placing a tube down a person's lungs to assist them into breathing. You had to know the pharmacology component of it, what drugs to give under what circumstances. These were the things that were only happening in the inner city streets of Pittsburgh. Everywhere else in the country, it was business as usual. No EMS care. Out in the field, John quickly learned that he was good at his job. He was doing things that had originally only been done in operating rooms and was wildly successful at it. And he started to notice just how special all of the things he was doing with Freedom House were. From the community they served to the medical professionals they had to interact with. The hospitals were not used to a paramedic coming in, giving them an up-to-date medical report on a patient. They were used to ambulances coming in, dropping off a patient, giving them the name and address and stuff, and leaving. But Freedom House and myself did a complete workup a complete physical examination on a patient that the emergency room was not used to 
receiving. The nurses and doctors back then were seeing this birth of EMS care themselves in real time. You'd think they'd be wowed to see things done so effectively and professionally. But some of the folks on the receiving end of John's new expertise weren't quite impressed. We had a a young gentleman, probably about 22, 23 years old, that was lifting some boxes at work, and he had what we call a syncopal episode. This was the medical term for someone who had fainted. We get there, and he's still unconscious, and uh, we treat him. We administer oxygen to him. We start an IV on him. We put him on the heart monitor and transport him to the hospital. We went in, and a nurse said, okay, what do you have? So, me being a paramedic, simply said, okay, I have a 25-year-old male who had a syncopal episode at work. We started an IV. His heart rate was what we call a tachybrazy rhythm, which is sped up and slowed down and things like that. So I'm rattling off the stuff like I'm talking to you to the nurse. And she busts out laughing. (laughs) Laughing? Whoa. It totally took John by surprise and rightfully made him upset. And the worst part was he couldn't show her that. But he did take his discouragement to his boss, Nancy. I voiced my concern to our medical director at the time that I don't even know why we even have to learn all this stuff. She didn't listen anyway. Nancy tells John that he'd have to learn to speak the language of the emergency room, or no one would ever listen to him. So she instructs John to find a doctor on the floor and do it again. So I, in turn, went back in, found the physician, and explained the same thing to the doctor. Of course, you know, they were in awe at the same time, but it was received on a professional manner. And that, in turn, told me that we were doing something that had never been done. I mean, no one was ready for what they were doing. Freedom House had been proving that all of their training was doing more than the cops and funeral directors ever did. This was greatly felt by the residents of the Hill District. Their own had made it. It was more care being poured into their community than they'd ever seen. And they let Freedom House know their appreciation in their own special way. There were, you know, a couple of restaurants in the hill that we would go to and have lunch and stuff like that, that we would park our vehicle and leave the windows down, the doors unlocked and everything. So in this vehicle, You had all this advanced equipment, you had narcotics in there, you had drugs in there, and we paid absolutely no concern of anyone doing anything to the vehicle. We would actually leave it running and go into into a restaurant and sit down and and eat. So that was a, a level of trust that we had with the community The ambulances deserve a moment all their own. They were another proud innovation of Freedom House. They've been carefully designed, decked out, and customized down to the precise dimensions. It was like a 1970s medical version of Pimp My Ride. Everything served a life-saving purpose, even the most simple but crucial item of all, given their lack in the past. There's a, a seat at the head of the patient which gives you the opportunity to be able to talk to the patient, to assist them 
with their breathing to administer oxygen. This was a solid game changer because it meant patients wouldn't be left alone anymore, like they were in that paddy wagon with the cops or creepy hearse with the funeral director. The seat edition was in good company with a bunch of other equipment that, heads up, are going to sound standard to us now. But remember, back then it was anything but. In the back of our vehicles were a blood pressure cuff. That was a heart monitor that we could send a, a picture of that person's heart back to the emergency room so the physician would be prepared for it. We had a mass array of drugs to speed up the heart, to slow it down, to stop the irritability of it. All this en route to the hospital. And in that same stash were drugs that could help people struggling with other grave emergencies, like overdoses. Freedom House had a secret weapon they used on the street to fight to help those on the brink of possible death. Freedom House was the very first service in the country to administer Narcan outside of the hospital to a drug overdose patient. And now it's the wonder drug that all first responders have. I can't believe it started here, because nowadays you can find it at places like festivals and pharmacies everywhere. Freedom House Ambulance Service, this thing that started out as an experimental program, was really making waves and proving its success. And when that happened, it started to catch the attention of others, like the folks in the city administration. They were asked to expand their service. We had entered into a contract with the city of Pittsburgh during that time to provide service to downtown. That way, we were able to kind of expand outside of Oakland and the Hill District. Expansion signaled a good thing. More people to care for meant more lives saved. And more lives saved meant Freedom House was proving its case for their style of emergency medical services being adopted as a full-fledged and citywide service. What could possibly go wrong? Well, once they left the Hill District and other Black neighborhoods, apparently a lot. That's after the break. We all have questions that keep us up at night. The self-help industry tells us they have answers. As a journalist and a skeptic, I'm not so sure. So I've set out to talk to people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. I'm Katherine Rowland. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. On season one, we're diving deep into the portal of plant medicine and psychedelics. Listen to Seeking wherever you get your podcasts. Expanding beyond the hill and serving downtown meant Freedom House would be providing emergency care to white people. I mean, anyone should be happy to have such an experienced and knowledgeable team show up in their time of need. But not everyone felt that way. One day, John and his partner received a call that a white woman at a downtown office needed help. It went left from the very start. They arrived on the scene, and in her mind, she thought it'd be an easy, swoop-and-scoop-style transport. John had to explain they needed to do a full workup right there at the scene. And she very strongly objected to my touching her. Now, as a black man, John wasn't surprised this was happening. 
But he knew he had to pull her out of her prejudiced fog because her life depended on it. I had to somehow kind of convince her that if she held those type of beliefs because of who I was, or what I looked like, rather, then she was actually putting her own health at risk. White patients weren't the only ones pushing back against Freedom House. The cops saw them as competition, or upstagers, taking over a key part of their jobs. And to get that role back, emergency calls to Freedom House's base station started to be messed with. The way it was supposed to work was... An individual would call a police dispatcher and tell them what the problem would be, and they would in turn transfer that call to Freedom House. The base station dispatcher would take that information and send an ambulance team to the necessary location. But if loyal police dispatchers decided to not route calls to Freedom House, there was nothing they could do. And sure enough, those phones started to go quiet. Oftentimes, Freedom House did not get the life-threatening calls that we were primarily reserved for. The cops' jealousy probably cost lives, but Freedom House didn't give up. We started monitoring the police calls. And whenever we heard a life-threatening call that was dispatched to a police vehicle, we would jump on the call and beat the police there. And oftentimes, we would get there and transport the person and pass the police en route to the patient's home. This was the same police scanner tactic that would go on to help that young child hit by that bus that we talked about earlier. That can't-stop-won't-stop attitude was the heartbeat of Freedom House and every person on the team. They might have learned to pull a fast play on the police, but there was a group who had more power and a wider reach that wanted to make their own attempt to pull the plug on Freedom House, the city administration. Freedom House had gotten too big, too successful, and they wanted to let them know that they were the ones who kept their lights on, figuratively and literally. They went down a couple paths. The easiest? Mess with the money. When Freedom House was created back in 1967, it was operating off of only $100,000 a year, which was already a tough amount to work with. By the time John joined in 1971, their funding had been cut in half. They'd been bullied into accepting the lowball amount after being told that if they refused the $50,000, the cops would just take over the service. And if the money wasn't enough of a headache, the administration started toying with their ability to do their job in a truly dangerous way. The administration sent out a memo to Freedom House stating that whenever you enter the downtown business district, you are not allowed to use your sirens to go on emergency calls. The city claimed businesses had been complaining about the noise and the drivers were driving dangerously and it was a threat to pedestrians. But John read between the lines. If people are complaining about the use of the siren, they're also looking inside that vehicle and seeing who's in it. Beyond the very clear racial implications, the administration was sending a dangerous message about its lack of care for the citizens of Pittsburgh, who would be caught in the crosshairs of this decision. So imagine me going into downtown and having to stop at every red light and sit there and wait for it to change, and then move to the next light 
in the meantime, the person five blocks away is laying out on the street unconscious. And I get there and somebody says, well, what took you so long? Well, I'm sick. I had to obey the traffic lights. That's why it took me so long. Freedom House kept their focus on their unrelenting mission, and in early 1975, they even won a grant from the Department of Transportation to create an EMS training program based on their work, and it would be used all around the country. John and the team were now called the most skilled and sophisticated paramedics in the nation. But the city's own governing body refused to see their value. Soon enough, Freedom House learned why. The city decided they did want to improve and widen service, but they didn't want to do it with Freedom House. The city, in turn, decides to start its own EMS system. And when they did, 98% white, 97% from the suburbs. So you bring in an all-white organization that had no allegiance to the city Period. None. If the city's administration wanted to improve on pre-hospital care and the ambulance service, all it had to do was expand the service that already existed. Freedom House was made to officially close its doors on October 15, 1975. John and the team sat in silence when at the stroke of midnight, the call was made to the police dispatcher announcing the group was going off the air, forever. Many would go on to work for the city EMS service, like John, but it wasn't the same. They were made to watch as the all-white teams took the reins of patient care, even though they were the skilled originators. We were the first to do every single thing that they do out in the street. But once I come to your service, I'm like a third person. I'm not allowed to do anything. Not allowed to talk on the radio, not allowed to examine patients. I'm just sitting back there observing. All this experience, all this training, all this knowledge that I brought, can't use it because you came from Freedom House. When you talk to John today, you can feel just how close all of this still is to him, even though it happened 47 years ago. But his pride as he rattles off the list of firsts is palpable. The actual design of EMS units today, the equipment that's on them, we field tested it all to make sure that it was feasible to be used outside of the hospital. The various drugs that the paramedics use today, we're the very first service in the country to use them. Tracheal intubation which is a normal occurrence that paramedics are required to do at the scene of any cardiac arrest. We were the very first to actually do that outside of a hospital. It had never been done before. But being the first doesn't always mean you walk away victorious. Innovators from underrepresented groups know this well. It's why this podcast even exists. It's easy to look at the end of Freedom House as a tragedy. I mean, it was, but I think it's easier to see it for its overwhelming impact, its transformational innovation, and Freedom House's game-changing imprint on healthcare. This is a tongue-tying list of adjectives, but it's deserved. We're talking about medical greatness. 
but was originally born out of a dire need for an overlooked black community and was refined by those same people is something we're all benefiting from today. Many of us have never known life without EMS services, and that's because of them. No one can take that away from Freedom House, and John will be the first to tell you. Freedom House itself was just so far in advance. We were so far ahead of our time that it was just unbelievable. They wrote the damn textbook. Next time on, they did that. When you're growing up in wartime, survival is at the top of your mind. So he said about learning how to make noodles. He was a guy working out of a shed in his backyard, and it's become this food that has changed the way we eat. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by Tiffany Walker. Our associate producer is Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Grant Irving and Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. Our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson. And to learn more about John Moon and the amazing history of Freedom House Ambulance Service, be sure to pick up a copy of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics by Kevin Hazard. <laughs>